Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Van Maren Show. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and today we're going to be tackling a topic that a lot of the listeners have expressed interest in. And so I've wanted to have somebody on to discuss the subject for, for quite some time. Now, if you live anywhere in the West, you'll have noticed that almost every major business and every major corporation has gone woke. And it seems like overnight in the last couple of years, suddenly Pride Month involves endorsements by every major company. We're talking telecom companies. We're talking banks. It really doesn't matter what it is. Everything is being wrapped in the rainbow flag. You see massive corporations attempting to hop on board with causes like Black Lives Matter, it, it doesn't really matter actually what the woke cause is, whether it's opposing pro-life laws, whether it's pushing gender ideology, whether it's pushing the LGBT agenda. Big business seems to be pushing back against the remaining vestiges of social conservatism in Western culture. And so to discuss this topic, I'm talking to the author of The Dictatorship of Woke Capital, How Political Correctness Captured Big Business. It was published back in February by Encounter Books. Just to give you a bit of background on Steve, besides the author of the book that we'll be discussing, he's the vice president and publisher of the Political Forum, which is an independent research provider that delivers research and consulting services to the institutional investment community with an emphasis on economic, social, political, and geopolitical events that are likely to have an impact on the financial markets in the U.S. and abroad. He's an experienced and accomplished writer and communications professional. All of this to say that he knows about what he writes. He is an insider in the community of big big business. He is very familiar with the financial sector, and he turned this knowledge and a wealth of research into this, this brilliant book that I urge you all to read if you want to get a handle on the subject, The Dictatorship of Woke Capital. So Steve was kind enough to join us on the program, and this was our conversation. So this new book is is quite prescient when you consider what a lot of conservatives are discussing right now. I think most major commentators are discussing, you know, woke big business. You've also got uh, discussions going on at the recent National Conservatism Conference on how to to combat big business. So what what turned you on to this lead? What 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 uh, sort of triggered your interest in this subject? I've worked in the financial services industry for just over twenty five years for my entire professional career. And I've seen firsthand how politics has become a much more significant player in, in capital markets over the course of that quarter century. Over the past five or six years or so, I've seen that politicization uh, rather aggressively ramp up. And during that same period of time, I uh, met a handful of people who were involved in the same in the same field, who were interested in the same types of things, who were following the same types of issues. And, and together, we sort of formulated an idea and a plan for alerting people to what was, was very much a, an issue that was something that very few people knew about. We thought it was something that was important, something that very few people, even within the financial services community, understood, and that definitely needed to, be, to have greater publicity surrounding it. So just to, I guess, start with your title to kind of lay this out for readers. You talk about the dictatorship of woke capital. Uh, what do you mean by the dictatorship of woke capital? When I use that term, the dictatorship of woke capital, what I mean is the top-down anti-democratic effort on the part of 
a number of America's business leaders and government leaders to change the relationship between American business and its customers, and by so doing, change the relationship between the citizen and the state. Now, let's get into into a bit of the details on what that means, because generally we're watching a realignment take place on the right, because generally conservatives have been very focused on the free market. And so presumably, if Coca-Cola wants to promote the LGBT movement, for example, or, you know, Starbucks wants to promote transgenderism, that's their business. But when you talk about how coercive this is becoming and what a threat this is becoming, how do you suggest conservatives begin to respond to this developing threat? Well, the first thing I want to do is is clarify terms just a little bit. I think that historically, Republicans have been supportive of big business. They haven't been quite as supportive of free markets as they should be, but they've been supportive of big business instead. And, And I think that that's sort of the key to what we're seeing. If we were more supportive of free markets, if we were more supportive of business and market forces in general, then we wouldn't be, uh, in the position where, you know, there's a handful of companies, 500 companies, you know, the S&P 500, who are dominating our, our economic realm. We would probably be more interested in creating jobs and creating wealth through small business and simply allowing market mechanisms to function more effectively. So I, I don't think it's it's quite accurate to say that the Republicans have been terribly interested in free markets. They've been more interested in business. If they were more interested in free markets, I I think we could avoid a lot of the problems that we have here. And and I think that that's maybe one way to approach this is by uh, understanding the difference between uh, big business and free markets. When you talk about the threat big business is posing, let's get into some some specifics. To what extent do you think that woke big business has been actively trying to influence the culture on very significant moral and social issues over the last, say, 10 to 20 years? I think they've been very aggressive. And I think to their credit, they've also been very subtle for the most part up until the last two, three, four years. But they've been pushing generally in a more progressive direction. And I think that they've been very successful. The problem is that eventually you run out of low-hanging fruit to pick, and you have to start pushing on more difficult and more complicated and more controversial issues. And I think that that's probably what happened in Georgia in 2019, uh, when the entertainment industry in particular, led by Disney, got involved in a battle over abortion and sort of awakened a lot of people in the political realm, including Senator Tom Cotton, from whom the title of my book is drawn, awakened those people to what is going on and and why it's a significant issue. Now, I'm always interested in, in to what extent that woke big business actually has genuine influence. So with the Georgia example, where you basically see Georgia getting threatened over pro-life laws, you see sort of over coercion, a threat of the removal of capital if 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 they don't change political course. And we've, we've also seen this, of course, with the recent pro-life law in Texas, et cetera. But to what degree is, is woke big business just climbing on board a bandwagon they see as as already having conquered the culture? And to what extent are they furthering the sexual revolution and and actually changing the culture further? I think we can probably divide that into various types of businesses, retail-facing businesses like Coca-Cola or Delta Airlines, some of the people who got most of the publicity surrounding the uh, voter integrity laws in Georgia and Texas. These companies, I think, are more following the trend more trying to keep up with 
the social developments in the country. But there are other companies, if, for example, we go into the financial services industry, and this is where, you know, my interest has peaked. There are other country or companies that are, are forcing this, that are really pushing this aggressively in terms of uh, climate change, in terms of sustainability, in terms of diversity on boards and in C-suites. So I, I think it depends quite a lot on which company we're talking about. So that's a very like an interesting an interesting point because perhaps we can name some names. What would you say are are some of the most dangerous companies in terms of of pushing a woke dictatorship? There are four that I would name offhand, and the first three uh, are the large, the big. They're called the big three passive asset management firms, and that's BlackRock, uh, Vanguard, and State Street. They are essentially colluding to push a. Uh, sustainability agenda on all of American business, and, and they're having quite uh, a significant impact. Uh, the fourth one that I would add is NASDAQ, because it has just within, within the past few months proposed a rule for all of the companies that it has listed on its exchange that they have to have a, uh, a diverse board of directors, meaning they have to have at least one woman and at least one minority either racial or sexual minority on their board of directors, or they will be delisted. And, and so th these four companies and the first three specifically with sustainability and NASDAQ with, with regard to um, diversity, uh, they are really pushing the agenda quite a bit on American business. I'm very interested in in specifically how this sort of woke takeover of a lot of big business took place, because so like if, if you take a look at big media, for example, right, and you read Barry Weiss's expose of what goes on at The New York Times, basically what, what she's saying is that there's a lot of of, of, of liberals who are being led around by, uh, by the nose by a handful of sort of woke staffers, right? So you've got, you know, transgender copy boys kind of telling the editor-in-chief what to do because he's wielding his victimhood status like a club. You have the same thing with, with Netflix over the Dave Chappelle thing, right? Where you've got a handful of no-name staffers who nobody who's nobody's ever heard of, but yet wield this enormous amount of influence and can force the CEO to apologize. In your mind, is, is, is big business being hijacked by by younger woke employees or are we talking about CEOs? Are we talking about, you know, the very top of the company that's deciding to go into this direction and is just being pushed a bit by the younger team members? The pressure on big business comes from three directions. It comes from the bottom up, which as you just mentioned is, is Netflix. It's a lot of the tech companies. Um, it's companies that are being pushed in a leftward direction by their employees. The pressure often comes from the top down. And I'd go back to Disney on this when Bob Iger was the CEO of Disney. Bob Iger made the decisions to push the company into the cultural realm and in very hard to the cultural left. And then there's a great deal of business that comes from the outside in. And this is where the financial services companies come in. This is where activist investors come in. This is where ESG investing comes into play. This, these are outside actors who are exerting their pressure as shareholders on these companies to move in a much more aggressively political direction. 
Let's talk a little bit about about specific motive, because uh, Tucker Carlson in his book, Ship of Fools, which I found to be kind of interesting, theorizes on some of the reasons for these companies. You've got companies like Uber and Amazon hopping hopping on board, so say, the the Black Lives Matter train while, you know, not offering health care to their own employees. Right. They're they're very quick to jump on board woke bandwagons while refusing to do concrete things that would actually cost them money to make the lives of those in their immediate spheres of influence and and their families far better. And so he kind of argues that, you know, they're just avoiding their responsibility to their own employees by waving the right flags and putting floats in the right parades. There's others that make the argument that a lot of these big business people feel guilty for how filthy rich they are. And so they sort of pose as political socialists and people who are on board with the woke revolution in order to distract, you know, from from the guilt they feel at living in these enormous mansions. Where do you fall on the spectrum in terms of why they're doing this? I think it's probably a combination of the two. In my book, uh, I have detailed how the left in the West and in the United States in particular in the 1960s moved away from economics as its primary focus and moved to the culture as its primary focus. And so what you get is a a series of generations, beginning with the baby boomers, uh, onto Gen X, onto the millennials, et cetera, who are raised on this notion uh, that what matters in politics is culture and all that matters in politics is culture. And so what you get are you get CEOs who are not guilty at all. You do not feel guilty at all uh, about making billions of dollars, but yet feel guilt about the social inequalities that they see. And they try and buy grace on the cheap. Essentially what, you know, Jeff Bezos is doing is trying to buy indulgences from the secular Pope at Black Lives Matter. He's trying to assuage his guilt about these social inequalities, despite the fact that he doesn't feel any guilt whatsoever about his own personal wealth. Social matters are what concern them. Economic matters are generally things that they think are settled, that the market kind of works on its own and there's no need for uh, government to come in and disrupt all of that and to take possession of the means of production. So you, you, you get people who are Marxist only in the cultural sense. That's a very interesting way of putting it. Uh, people will have, the listeners especially will have heard the term cultural Marxist a lot, but Marxist only in the cultural sense is a is a really interesting and, 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 and witty distinction. Now, in your book, you talk about how political correctness captured big business. If you were to give a listener totally unfamiliar with the subject sort of the Cliff Notes timeline of how this took place, how would you explain it to them? I, I would explain it to them by saying there are two intellectual streams, one beginning uh, in 1876 at Johns Hopkins University with Richard Ely, who's a professor of economics, and his student, Woodrow Wilson, who together become the godfathers of American progressivism, the idea, and together formulate the idea that the people are not smart enough and are too selfish to make decisions, important decisions on their own, and that they need a guardian class to make these decisions for them. And then the second stream begins in post-World War I Germany with what eventually becomes you know, the critical theorists who bring critical theory to the United States, and then critical theory is sort of popularized and, and turned into pop culture by Herbert Marcuse. And then these two streams of of intellectual development sort of merge in the late 1960s 
with this idea of culture being the most important thing in the Marxist game plan and the, the idea that Americans and, and voters in general need to have a guardian class. So we end up with a guardian class of, you know, cultural Marxists who have decided to push their beliefs and their agenda on the American people through any and all institutions they can. And the final institution of, to fall to these Marxists is American big business. A critical race theory is a term that we've heard a lot, especially in the wake of the Virginia elections. But a lot of people don't actually know what critical theory is. How would you summarize critical theory in layman's terms? Critical theory in, in layman's terms would essentially be the argument that workers suffer from false consciousness. And this false consciousness is created by and large by the culture by the Christian culture, by the church, and by all of the institutions that the church built in Western civilization around it. And the only way to dismantle this false consciousness is to take over the institutions. This is what Rudy Dushke, the, the East German Marxist, called uh, the long march through the institutions, and which Antonio Gramsci, the Italian uh, post-war Marxist, post-World War I Marxist, described very clearly in his writings as a slow, in uh, a slow, purposeful attack on the institutions to take them over and to use them to change the culture and to change the false consciousness that the workers had been subjected to by the Christian cultural hegemony. Now, when we're looking at at big business, it's it, one of the things that, that always strikes me is that there are, are various theories about how Christians, how social conservatives can respond to the revolution of wokeness in various areas, right? So you've got the Daily Wire attempting to get in, into the entertainment business, and, and, and we'll see how that goes. I'm skeptical, but that's, that's, that's what they're trying to do. You know, you have schools separating out with media. You've got these, the, like the, the advent of Substack means you've got this exodus of sort of the right liberal crowd that are starting their own, their own media outlets and garnering their own audiences, right? Barry Weiss left the New York Times and her first year at Substack, she made 800 grand, which she used to also hire other journalists to break other stories, but on her Substack. And then recently we found out about the, the launch of the University of Austin, where you have a lot of, uh, of liberal or sort of intellectual dark web type intellectuals that are that are, are starting their own institution because they've concluded that the that, that mainstream academia and the ivory tower schools are, are lost. And so just we'll we'll see how how these these new institutions and these new movements pay off and play out. But big business, because of the sheer amount of wealth and power they've accrued, does seem almost impossible to beat. So after after your analysis is is laid out, when it's a very convincing one on on the dictatorship of woke capital, what do you propose ordinary people do about it? And I'll just give you one example. I remember having somebody ask me, "Is there any bank or any financial institution that doesn't have their ATMs wrapped in the Pride flag, you know, during Pride Month? Is there any place I can go to that isn't funneling money towards things I find abhorrent?" And after a bit of research, the answer was no. There actually isn't. And so how do you propose people push back against this? Well, you're absolutely correct. There, there is no bank uh, that isn't woke, that isn't heavily involved in, in pushing sustainability and diversity and, and all of the other memes of wokeness. You're also correct that there's some question as to whether building uh, 
competitive cultural institutions is going to work. Conservatives have been doing that for decades. I mean, all of the think tanks you see around Washington are essentially the conservatives, conservatives' effort to create alternative educational institutions. And it would be unfair to say they haven't worked because they've worked. I don't think, however, that they've achieved their primary goal, which is to uh, provide an alternative source that is just as respected respected and accepted as the, you know, the primary sources. So I, I think that building institutions to combat is important, but it's not enough. So what can people do? The first thing that they can do is to take back what is theirs. Take back ownership of your retirement funds. Take back ownership of your stock investments. Take back uh, ownership of your consumer dollars. And when I say that, I don't necessarily mean boycott. What I mean is engage. If you're a shareholder of AT&T and you're tired of the way AT&T engages uh, with Black Lives Matter and the way that it, it can, tries to convince its employees that whiteness is bad, then engage with them. Call the company. Call shareholder services. Call you know, your broker. Get angry and, and, and make an attempt to push back. At least be engaged. Companies are responsive uh, to, as particularly when shareholders engage with them. The other thing to do is, is to know who's managing your money. If, for example, you are in a 401k from your employer and BlackRock happens to be the fund source for all of your manager's choices, then you have to know that you will automatically be put into an ESG fund, you know, as soon as the, the Biden, Biden Labor Department gets its new rule approved, you will be automatically default put into an ESG fund, and you have to be aware of that, and you have to be willing to push back against that and say, look, this is not what we want to do. If you're a business owner and BlackRock or Vanguard, Vanguard is one of the largest managers uh, in the country of 401k plans. If your company has your 401k plan managed by BlackRock or by Vanguard, push back, take your money out of that and find a local manager who will be more responsive to your needs rather than their political desires. We have to at least be aware and start making an effort to push back. Over the past six months, I think we've seen a proliferation of people in the financial services industry who are recognized, recognizing the problem and recognizing that we need to have uh, alternative institutions within finance that will allow us uh, to compete uh, with the left. Business is not fully gone. That's, that's the one thing about business as an institution is it's the one institution in the West that has not fully been captured. So if we make ourselves aware if we uh, make ourselves active in managing our own uh, affairs, if we push back against this, we can take it back. I think in, in this instance, we can make a, a considerable dent in what the left has done. And I, I think that that can be very, very uh, productive. Before we move on to optimism, I wanted to get your take on how bad you think this could get first, because there's a range of opinions on that, as, as you well know, and as you've elucidated in the past, there are some who say, like, look, next thing you know, the credit card companies and all these other financial companies are going to start to basically suspend certain conservative groups, anti-abortion groups, work your way down the list. And then, of course, you go all the way to the Rod Dreher point of view, which is that 
all of this is basically heading for a social credit system that the financial system, uh, the financial sector, pardon me, is basically helping to facilitate. Where where do you fall in terms of the doomsday predictions? You know, my opinion on that has probably changed over the past three weeks. If you'd asked me this three weeks ago, I probably would have said, I think we're doomed. I think that the takeover of the large financial services firms is too far gone for us to capture the banks back. And, And I think that we're going to end up having to create sort of a a separate credit system for companies that can't get financed uh, by traditional banks and and things like that, you know, fossil fuel companies and weapons manufacturers, et cetera. But something interesting happened about three weeks ago in Saudi Arabia, where all of the world's financial gurus were gathered. And Larry Fink, who's the CEO of BlackRock, talked about how short term lack of investment in fossil fuels is what's driving inflation. And if we want to be smart about uh, stopping inflation, we need to be more invested in the short term in fossil fuels. Now, if you know what Larry Fink has said in the past, you know what his grand scheme is, you know that sounds sort of strange because Larry Fink is the sustainability guy. He's the guy who sent his minions out there and used their proxy votes to put three radical environmentalists on the board of directors at Exxon. He's a guy who's preaching the sustainability gospel all the time. Now, what people may not realize is that Fink is also quite the cynic, and you don't get to be a billionaire starting your own company if you're not smart. He's BlackRock is also the largest shareholder of Exxon still. BlackRock is also still the largest shareholder of PetroChina, which is the listed arm of the Chinese National Petroleum Company. So, While Fink is preaching the sustainability gospel, he's also cynically holding on to petroleum companies in the hope that this crisis will uh, create an opportunity for him to make an awful lot of money, the reinvestment short term in fossil fuel companies. So I, I think that the reason that that gives me some optimism is that there's a reason to believe that much of this is cynical and about making money rather than purely ideological which means that it could be manipulated. And eventually, if we figure out ways to combat the sustainability and the diversity memes by showing that profits lie elsewhere, that we can get a lot of these players back because they're not interested necessarily in ideology as much as they are in making money. That's very interesting because halfway through your answer, I'm like, where's the where's the optimism headed in, in, in this answer? <laughs> <laughs> it, it's not optimism in... The idea that these people are not grifters. I mean, they most certainly are. Larry Fink is the greatest grifter of all time in financial services. Yes, but agree. Yeah, I agree with you, though, that grifters are, are preferable to radical ideologues because grifters at least act in self-interest and can be reasoned with on the basis of their own selfishness rather than an ideologue who doesn't care if it all burns. Right. And, you know, I, I may have to alter my in the book. I refer to Fink as a true believer, and I may have to alter my perception of him based on some of what he's doing now, because it's clear that he's intends to manipulate the the petroleum markets in in the short term to make a lot of money. And he probably will, which, as I say, and as you just said, is, is much preferable to him being a true believer. 
What do you think are the chances of the financial sector facilitating um, a sort of a Chinese-style social uh, credit system at some point? Do you think that's just sort of the the typical apocalyptic predictions of, of the terrified right who are under siege? Or do you think there's actually some merit to that that prophecy? I don't think they could do it by themselves. I think they need the government to help them. And unfortunately, at this point, they have the government helping them quite a bit. That's why I, I think it, think it's probably, despite the fact that the solution, the ultimate solution that I offer at the in the conclusion of my book is to depoliticize markets. I think in the short term, uh, we're going to have to have some sort of political pushback um, and in a very aggressive, both from the voters and from elected officials to sort of put the binders on some of the bureaucratic agencies that are trying to enable this creation of a social credit system, the SEC in particular right now, but also the Labor Department, the Treasury Department, and some others that are that are really aggressively pushing sustainability, aggressively pushing the idea that we should punish those who are not on the sustainability train. On a closing note here, which politicians are saying the sorts of things that make you happy considering your analysis? I know you've mentioned Tom Cotton and Marco Rubio. What do you think of of Josh Hawley, you know, Ohio Senate candidate J.D. Vance? Looking ahead to, to next year and then to 2024, from a political perspective, how do you think that we should be approaching this? All of the names that you mentioned are people who are, who are very interested in the subject and, and are are working to push back against it. I, I think that the problem we run into with entrusting politicians too much is that they have their own ambitions. Um, J.D. Vance really interests me, not just because he is, you know, sort of the new kid on the block and is, is very aggressively pushing some of the pushback, or pushback against this, but also because he's from Ohio and he was in the same law school class with Vivek Ramaswamy, which means they know each other. They're friends. They live in the same state. And, you know, Vivek is, is probably uh, his book, in addition to my book, are the two that put this sort of on uh, the map for people. And his book has been fantastically successful. And he's a very, very smart, very persuasive uh, speaker. So it, it gives me hope that there's a possibility that Vance and, and Ramaswamy can work together, perhaps Ramaswamy as an advisor to Vance as, as a politician, which I think would be fantastic. Uh, so, you know, again, those four are very involved. I, I get hesitant because politicians are ambitious, but Vance has some pretty smart people in his, you know, in his group of people that he knows and that are, are providing him with information and with direction on this issue. Final question, where can all of our listeners uh, get a copy of your book, The Dictatorship of Woke Capital? Well, you should be able to get it almost anywhere. You can get it at Barnes & Noble and Walmart and Amazon. If you can, however, buy it from my publisher, which is EncounterBooks.com, that would be best because then you avoid having any of the troubles of buying it from a woke corporation. Although there's some irony in buying a book that that has a full chapter about Amazon from Amazon. But yeah, I, I... You could get it just about anywhere. Steve, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with Stephen Sukup, the author of The Dictatorship of Woke Capital, How Political Correctness Captured Big Business. We really appreciate you joining us this week. If you want to listen to past shows with other authors, you can either head over to LifeSiteNews.com and click on the podcast tab where you can subscribe there, or you can find us anywhere that you download your podcast content. 
Again, thanks so much for joining us this week, and we hope you'll join us again next week.